Hello, and welcome to the Homeland Podcast. Step out to find out it's wet and warm, wet and warm. Tra-la-la, 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 tra-la-la. And then I think that the notion that there, if we flatten it, there isn't a hierarchy. And that hierarchy uh, notion, I think, extends to, um, you know, the user groups. It's flat and open for all. On today's podcast, I interview Alan Compton, principal and founder of Salt Landscape Architects, and Rachel Allen of Rachel Allen Architecture, who, among other projects, are helping to reimagine one of the more contested public spaces in America, Los Angeles's Pershing Square. Our conversation in their studio space in downtown LA's fashion district was discursive and exploratory, probing the themes of homelessness, architecture, landscape architecture, and urban design, and exploring how those design disciplines are poised to respond to the challenges of homelessness in a city where the phenomenon is most prevalent and widespread. We explore the deliberate design of Skid Row, Alan's work for the Skid Row Housing Trust, and the future of downtown LA's open spaces. But we started the conversation with their reflections, not as designers, but as Angelinos. Maybe let's start just talking about your everyday lived experience as residents of the city and kind of as you talk to your friends about how the phenomenon of homelessness manifests in Los Angeles. For the casual observer, what would they have as a takeaway? That's a super interesting place to start. Um, I have two kinds of experiences I can speak to. I think the more intimate one is actually the one I'll talk about first which is um, until a few months ago, my husband and I lived in Lincoln Heights on um, a, a block um, with mostly folks who lived there a very long time. And one of our neighbors who we used to see often um, started living on the sidewalk of our block. And we learned through the neighbors that he had um, recently been released from prison and he was living with his family and um, had recently started using again, and his family had kicked him out, and he didn't want to leave the block where he grew up. He had never lived anywhere else than on that block or in prison, was what he told us, and he just didn't want to live anywhere else. And it was incredibly challenging. Like, I mean, I, I want to say, not most of all for me, obviously, it was more challenging for him, but it was also challenging for our family and for his na- our neighbors and his family, and you know, we all um, uh, set about trying to help, and we didn't. We started by not knowing how to help, and we reached out to um, Molly Reisman because we thought uh, someone we know who works with um, homeless advocacy on a daily basis would know what to do when we didn't know what to do, and it it um, is uh, I'm not sure. It didn't resolve. It has not resolved. You know, I still um, see him in the neighborhood. Um, he doesn't look good. You know, it's heartbreaking. Um, but that's. Um, I don't think I'm the only one with a story like that. That close to home. You know, close to home is not a metaphor in, in Los Angeles. Um, 
that's the really intimate one. And then when you work in downtown Los Angeles, uh, uh, I should say if I have a daily encounter with mental illness um, on the sidewalks of downtown Los Angeles, it's a daily encounter. Um, every it's a yeah every single day that I come into the office, I um, I uh, engage with mental illness. Sure. Um, I think. Um Similar, uh, I don't have a similar intimate story that like Rachel has uh, with regards to homelessness. Um, I will say that um, up until just recently, I, I spent, uh, lived in Eagle Rock, in the neighborhood of Eagle Rock in uh, Northeast Los Angeles, which has historically been kind of a, a little side suburb bedroom neighborhood. And, um, but the homelessness uh, um, numbers have increased so much that we're, that community, which really felt like it was kind of beyond much of the downtown homeless issue, uh, became a place where a lot of homeless began to reside. And the community really was uncertain about how to address it. And, and uh, there was, as uh, you might expect, uh, empathetic response. Um, and frustrated, fearful, and angry response within the community as well. And I don't think that there's a clear resolution yet. I think that um, uh, the community is still sort of struggling with how to uh, uh, address it. But I think um, one of the things that I think um, is interesting is that I think on the whole, I think in Los Angeles, we're seeing um, a level of empathy that I think maybe we didn't see. I, there's no, I don't have any statistics on that. That's purely a kind of anecdotal perception. And maybe it's an echo chamber of the community that I'm within. But um, I think that, uh, you know, the press recognizes how significant the issue is. The, the politicians, the policymakers, um, people in, in various service industries, and the nonprofits that are sort of popping up um, indicate to me that um, this is not the same approach that they had in the 70s or before. Um, I heard a podcast recently that described uh, an official policy called the containment policy that was written in the 70s that was intended to create uh, you know, a location within downtown with a certain kind of set of rules um, that would create an environment where the homeless would gather. Sure. And, uh, so, um, but I think that, that that's not on the table anymore. And I think that people recognize that the, the, the scope of it is so significant that it's beyond um, the moment in which anybody could ignore it, you know? And I think that, um, so, and like Rachel on a day-to-day -day basis, as I walk to lunch, as I walk from where I park my car, uh, we certainly see people who are sleeping who may be having a kind of psychotic moment. Uh, we hear up here in our, with our windows open um, of people yelling throughout the day. Um, it's, uh, it doesn't create a crisis amongst the pedestrians that are there. And maybe uh, one way to look at that is um, that there's a kind of callousness that people don't care. But on the other hand, there isn't a, a kind of uh, fear that says call the police immediately either mm -hmm. um, and so um, I, I, that's mostly just sort of an observation sure I think. I, I think the story that you told Rachel is really telling I mean 
and comparing that with the containment plan of Skid Row, yeah. I mean, the containment plan was keep people within Skid Row and kind of a different set of norms were happening there than the rest of the city. The story that you told was really telling in that this was a person who felt and still feels like a part of a community. And the issue of a roof over one's head is perhaps different than the idea of home. Because uh, it feels like this person is, is, is wanting to stay within his home <laughs> um, in, in a certain way. Uh, so it suggests perhaps a different spatial strategy than, than LA has used in the past. So you have both been intimately involved in Skid Row in a certain way uh, in your involvement with the Skid Row Housing Trust. Can you talk a little bit about how that came to be and kind of um, what you were asked to do there? So um, uh, for me, um, Rachel, have you worked with them yet? No, yeah. Rachel hasn't worked with Skid Row Housing Trust yet, but um, several years ago, uh, probably 2010, um, somewhere in there, Molly Reisman, uh, who works for Sheila Kuhl now, um, uh, and is her uh, homeless policy uh, director, um, was uh, working for Skid Row Housing Trust, and our kids were at the same daycare. And so uh, at that time, Skid Row Housing Trust wanted to rework a courtyard at the back of one of their SROs, the Las Americas. And it was a, an asset for the building that was really underutilized. It had become kind of a storage space, a little bit of a dumping ground. It wasn't that secure, and it was in no way a place that anybody wanted to spend any time. But they knew that it could be. And so they asked me to come in and work with the residents um, to develop an idea for how the space might be organized and uh, what kind of programmatic elements might be part there. And um, they asked uh, me to work with another nonprofit group that was downtown called the Urban Garden Network. And that is a nonprofit group. I'm actually not sure if they're still operating. They may be, but they um, would come to often a, 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 an organization that was dealing with homeless um, and helped install um, container gardening and would work with residents um, to make those gardens really kind of flourish. So this was my first introduction to um, uh, kind of homeless uh, uh, efforts to really address homelessness. And uh, Skid Row Housing Trust uh, is in a remarkable organization and it taught me a lot about how um, they um, saw a strategy for eliminating homelessness. It would seem so radical to me. It always seemed like, well, that just, uh, how would one go about that? So anyway, um, I was asked uh, to work with the residents. And so we set up a first meeting um, and we got to go, I got to go and look at the courtyard, um, sort of assess that, and then begin to ask people what it is that they thought they might want. This was the beginning of what I sort of love about my profession. And that is the sort of sociological and anthropological angle that allows me to sort of ask all these questions about the user group. And in many of our projects, the user group needs very little bit. It didn't take long interviewing this group to realize it was a very different user group. And so we, um, uh, 
uh, began to talk about things like, what kind of spaces would you like to be in? And some interesting things emerged pretty quickly. They had a very strong wish for a sense of intimacy in the space. And we were lucky because the courtyard itself wasn't very big. We would have had to subdivide it and try and create greater levels of intimacy if it was expansive. So many people wanted uh, a sense of enclosure. So we proposed to have a pergola there uh, that would have some fairly eight foot high ceiling, um, a place to sit. Um, and then others, when we were asking about um, sitting at tables to eat outside, nobody was interested in sitting at a table with more than four people. Two was really much better. Then, so the notion of being in a kind of big social environment was really threatening, mm -hmm. uh, uncertain. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we began to, that was new. You know, it seems like so often uh, designing for social spaces, we try and mix it up, large tables, small tables, people to gather in intimate or big groups. But this was a, a user group that really wanted uh, privacy, quiet, a sense of security. The openness of the street was the last thing they wanted to replicate. Hmm. Did, did you get any insight as to why those those things were being asked for, like in conversations with the staff? What was it about these people's experiences that had turned them off to sort of that bigger social environment? Um, I'd say it didn't come back so much from the staff as it did from the residents themselves, really. And, and their response was simply that, um, you know, they uh, were uncertain of being with other people in any kind of uh, contained environment. There was always a sense that you didn't know what the other person was, what their agenda was, you know, what were they going to take, what did they, what were they going to try and get, were they going to take my stuff? There was just a sense that um, uh, being in a bigger group was just uh, uh, sort of threatening. And I think it was probably because they, each of them had had personal possessions stolen, you know, they had been attacked, um, you know, and that may have gone all the way back through family history or, or just the past X number of years in the street, you know, so a sense that I could trust being next to one person seemed safe, you know, and if they were going to have a chance to create an environment that they could sculpt themselves, they certainly were going to tell me what conditions were um, conducive for their own sense of safety and calm. The other thing that I thought was so amazing was when we started talking about gardening and the possibilities of growing food, the Skid Row Housing Trust really had kind of a continuum of, of sort of teaching people to be back into the network of society. And some of that was about trying to get a healthier diet going. Um, so starting with what if we grow our own food? What if we bring in people to talk about cooking, give people access to the kitchen to cook their own food so that it's not all fast food or other. And, um, uh, so this was the beginning of that. And many of the people, the, the responses to gardening were wide. Some people said, I don't want to get near that. It just seems alien. I don't want to get near the dirt. Others triggered a kind of emotional response because they remembered like growing tomatoes with their parents. And, you know, they hadn't had the opportunity to do that in 25 years. And so you just saw that it, it created... Um, a connection to a memory that was um, uh, overwhelming. Mm -hmm. and, and so that was really quite lovely. Um, 
and it seems like one of the things that that process afforded was the opportunity to shape one's own space and and in a sanctioned way that you are actually legally empowered to do this uh, where so much of the homeless experience seems to be skirting around the law um, so maybe talk a little bit more about that that process of engaging people and inviting them to define this place that they're going to occupy how did how was that a hurdle to make it safe for mm-hmm. them to mm-hmm. engage that process? Were mm-hmm. they intimidated by it? Right. Were they all over it? <laughs> uh, it's interesting. Um, I think uh, the process was much like any other sort of public outreach um, in that uh, Skid Row Housing knew that if they offered food, people would come. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, snacks and pizza and, and drinks were part of the agenda. And uh, so it brought a, a, a fair number of people. I'd say... We had probably 25 people over three different charrettes come. And uh, the co- there was a core group that kept coming back and then alternates that showed up at different times for the other ones. Um, and uh, we really ran it like any other public outreach charrette. We, brought, we started with a kind of open-ended uh, inquiry. Um, what's working, what's not working, what, what would you like to see, the sort of blue sky. And then um, I came back with a, a first set of uh, drawings of the courtyard and a series of uh, images of things that might be in the courtyard that included um, a bird feeder, included gardening, seating, pergola, lights, like a whole sort of playing deck of possibilities. Um, and then asked people with pens if they wanted to indicate where you know, these different things might occur to prioritize. Um, and uh, so we ended up with these big drawings uh, with a lot of marks on them and a lot of indicators of what was of interest. And uh, that was such great conversation. As I was just saying that you got to see um, people say that they had grown vegetables as a kid or I'm not interested in that. I just need a place to lock my bike. Um, you know, so there were, there were, you know, again, this sort of sense of personal safety and, and protection for, for possessions. Um, but uh, other folks really came out um, uh, with sort of personal wishes because they saw for the first time that, you know, can, a, a notion of creating a tranquil space, especially having been out on the street so much, I think felt really overwhelming. Certainly there were folks who didn't know how to begin. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, that seemed overwhelming, but others that quickly uh, could recount maybe other moments in their lives that have been tranquil and what could they pick from that. So carrying some of the things that you learned there, do you view the public realm as you navigate downtown LA or as you navigate your neighborhood? Do you view it differently? Do you see where things could be tweaked that could improve the situation for people who are experiencing homelessness or is it, um, you, you have to have come out of it with, with different lenses, I would, I would think. Yeah, I, but I think, and I think Rachel, you probably also have some thoughts as we, especially because Rachel and I are working together on the Pershing Square redesign, okay. mm-hmm. which is very much, uh, I think, at the locus of, it's not the core issue uh, in, in designing that, but it is a big one. Um, because at the moment, it's a big population that utilizes the park. Maybe just give a brief overview of what Pershing Square is for people who aren't familiar with it. Uh, wow, that's a tough one. Pershing <laughs> Square is a city block in downtown LA, which has never been built on. 
Uh, it goes way back to the last century. 150 years. Yeah. Public park. Um, and my understanding is that is originally because it's kind of swampy. <laughs> so uh, the uh, early city builders avoided it. Um, but that means it's never been built on. And um, we're a part of the team, Ajinstaring team, which won an international competition to redesign Pershing Square. Um, because the design that we currently have, which dates to 1992, um, it's quoted in urban uh, design textbooks worldwide as an example of what not to do. And I've talked about how one of the reasons it's what's not to do is because it's a place that is, feels notoriously unsafe to lots of different kinds of people, especially women. Um, the sight lines are not good. There are places to hide or sleep or use. I mean, I think that's why it, it, it actually um, serves a range of needs of the downtown community. Um, and uh, some of those needs are in conflict with one another. Um, and uh, so we want, we're right now engaged in redesigning it and our proposal uh, is based on this notion of radical flatness which is to um, demolish and uh, rebuild it so that it's um, there are fewer fewer uh, eddies and places to conceal oneself and activity and more uh, through sight lines, more visibility, more um, commonality. Um, uh, but when I think about how, as an architect, I've been influenced by looking at public space by Alan's work. Some of it is very subtle. Like, some of it is, I never thought about shade before or, like, places to sit down. It's really humane, some of it. Like, I don't need to, I, I hope that it's clear that that's the opposite of, of minimizing it. It's to say how huge benches and shade turn out to be, like, comfortable places where you can decide whether you're with people or not based on your body language or based on your, um, if you set something down, on, where you sit on the bench and if you set something down next to you or not, right? Like that's, it's very interesting to me, that, that grain of attention. Mm -hmm. um, so as, as you and your team are thinking about Pershing Square and thinking of, about this future of this idea of radical flatness, I imagine there's people kind of living, living their lives, living their private lives in public. And that's one of the, yeah. the sociologists say that that's one of the indicators of homelessness, so people yeah. living their private lives in public. How are you thinking about and wrestling with that issue within the Pershing Square conversation and maybe within the broader civic conversation? It's a big one. Um, I, you know, during the competition phase, as we um, uh, talked about what we wanted the park to do for the city, um, we had a lot of ambitions. Many of them are expected. That is, we wanted it to be sustainable. We wanted it to be a model for other possible city parks. Uh, we wanted to restore a notion of openness and, and uh, welcoming that we felt like had been written out of the park in the last design. And we wanted it, through this notion of radical flatness and radical openness, to be a place for everybody. That no one group got to dominate. 
that cut across all kinds of social economic lines. And I think we still want to figure out what that means from a policy and management and um, design perspective. And I think that we're just in the early stages of schematic uh, design at the moment in the park. So, um, you know, we're at a very sort of rudimentary technical level. So, but, but I think that, so we haven't had uh, the sort of management policy discussions yet with the city, but I think that that is um, something that's coming. And I think that we really hope that we can hold on to uh, the, this notion that the park serves everybody. And it's risky because um, I think that the, the, the park um, is got a lot of, I don't know, pressure on it to be a, a kind of sparkling jewel for the city, especially downtown. And I think there's a notion that that means a certain uh, group of people utilize the park. And I, I'm, I'm making some, maybe some assumptions here, but I think that there's going to be some sensitivity um, around these conversations of being really radically open. And uh, one of the things, of course, we talked about was, you know, if we can work with the city in the early phases to talk about who's going to work in the park. Can we work with other local uh, placement organizations who are trying to help people who are experiencing homelessness to get jobs? Are there opportunities to work in the park and, and fill some of that gap? You know, what are going to be the policies about sleeping in the park during the day? You know, what are some of these issues? So I, I think those conversations are coming, but we would really like early hope and desire to keep the park widely open for everybody to still be part of the discussion. Yeah, no, I'm interested in that way you said it a minute ago also, living their private lives in the public sphere. That's one, you said that's one way that uh, some folks define homelessness. I think that's very interesting. Is it your does it, is, it, is it intuition or is it backed up by um, data that that happens because we don't have enough housing, affordable housing? That, that the homeless problem is the kind of bottom dropping out of the housing market and that if when poor people don't have enough places to choose from to live, many of them go outside. Especially in a climate like Los Angeles. Right. Seattle where we're getting walloped by a storm right now. Uh, right. <laughs> more difficult um, yeah and it is and our Washington State Department of Commerce just did a study and looked at you know mental health spending opioid addiction all these kind of indicators that you would think are related and the indicator that was most correlated was vacancy rates and as we're having a boom going on right now we're having really low vacancy rates on rental units and you're seeing more people going out in the streets or mm. doubling up. Mm. Yeah. Um, let's go back to Pershing Square, though. Because um, it seems like I'm, this this metaphor of radical flatness, which which is a beautiful sort of, as a designer, as a visual thinker, that's a lovely design inspiration. But it also suggests an aspiration for the sociology of the place. And I wonder if um, it's not putting too much on the design piece of it to say that the design has to solve that issue. I mean, I'm, I'm really curious about where you were heading with the conversation 
Alan, about that ecology of, of management and of programming and enforcement and all that sort of stuff that helps make a place sustain over time. Um, yes, I mean, I think that that is a really complicated stew, but one that we want to engage in is at the right time. And, I, and early is the right time, not late. Um, and, I, and it's true, we really felt like um, how could the idea of a radically flat park that, um, uh, how can that really address so many of the issues that we feel like were at stake with the current design? And that included um, the sightline issues, which has got safety, but that's only part of the sightline issue, frankly, because I think that from an urban design perspective, the park is elevated. It physically is up, and that means it doesn't engage with the sidewalk. It doesn't engage with the street. It, at the time, I think in many ways, uh, the streets felt, the notion of public space in downtown in particular was very different, I think, in the 90s in Los Angeles. And I think the notion of creating a park that really was part of the city fabric seemed like a bad idea. Hmm. Um, I think the downtown wasn't a vibrant space um, it was a place where people came to work and then left, and that after hours, nobody really wanted to be around. Um, and I think we've seen a huge change in um, what downtowns can be. Um, and a generation is occupying downtown that wanted to uh, perform differently. I mean, I think this younger generation that's in downtown wants to be in public space, wants to use public transportation, often doesn't want to own a car, and wants to walk and want the sidewalks to be wide enough and they want to be able to ride their ski boards and take their bike to work. And so um, there is a notion, and so part of the radical flatness was um, sight lines, but it was how can we make that piece of the city that's been hard in many ways for 150 years, stitch back into the urban fabric. And that's true from uh, a kind of usability perspective. That is, I would like to be able to just go and feel a sense of calm in the middle of this day. Um, I'd like to meet friends. And I'd like to be able to easily cross this place. Um, and then I think that the notion that there, if we flatten it, there isn't a hierarchy. And that hierarchy uh, notion, I think, extends to, um, you know, the user groups. It's flat and open for all. And I think that um, we really found that idea uh, resonating in the early sort of conversations. So what's, what's the future for your collaboration? What's coming up next? What's on the horizon? That's a great question. <laughs> um, we've been working on another park together. Uh, we're working on multifamily housing together. I'm very interested in working on affordable housing because um, as an architect, that's what I, like I was getting at. I think that's the upstream problem that I can help with. I can bring my skills and services to bear. Uh, and then I participate as a citizen, right? Like I try to stay educated about mental illness and drug addiction and um, uh, so that when um, I encounter it as part of my daily life, I'm not so ignorant about what's going on. I'm not so reactive. Um, I think that um, one of the things Rachel and I are interested in now is um, we're actually going to go back and talk with Skid Row Housing Trust uh, to see uh, 
uh, as they look to continue to expand their operations and housing initiatives, how can we as a pair, of, uh, as architect and landscape architect, um, come with kind of a holistic approach to space making? Because, and, and this is, I'm excited about this in, in part because um, uh, in many ways, housing seems to be the first gut reaction for people's approach to solving or addressing homelessness. Um, and it is a critical piece. Um, and as landscape architects, I think we have uh, a role and a, and a place in that conversation that isn't about the building itself. And um, just as in my story of working with the residents to design the courtyard, I think that any housing initiative for homeless needs to include an opportunity for open space within the project uh, as a, moments of uh, calm and intimacy that are not just locked up in one's single room occupancy room, you know, and um, I think that there's so much literature about the healing nature of green space, of uh, open space, and with so much great weather here, you know, I think that there's uh, the, the sort of correlation between housing, um, places to eat, services, and Sort of protective outdoor spaces are, are, are kind of a great equation. Is there a lesson that you would share with your peers about thinking about these issues? What, what would you compel them to do or invite them to do? That is such a great question. <laughs> um, uh, I am I'm really grateful for collaborating with Alan on this because I honestly feel like until we started working together, I didn't fully understand that every building has an outside. <laughs> like it somehow wasn't Oh, architect. I'm, I'm confessing to it. I'm copying to it. I've been accused of being um, object-oriented, and I think it's true. I think I am object-oriented, essentially. But And I, I've also encountered a lot of bad landscape design, which um, my old boss and mentor, Frank Gehry, used to call like putting the building on a bed of lettuce like a pig on a platter where you just kind of tuck greenery around the edge of it to soften the place where it hits the ground. Oh my God, like it's such a terrible image and such a lost opportunity because where the building hits the ground is also where people tend to enter the building and engage with the building. It's not about backing up and looking at the building, but it's like really knitting the building to all the things that are not building, which is most other things, right? <laughs> It's, it's just a, been a huge um, expansion of understanding of what we're, what we're up to here and what we could do here if we thought about these things together instead of in our separate silos. And I think that, um, uh, I think landscape architecture in particular um, is got, at least I think it's probably true nationally that um, there is a big, uh, uh, social justice vein within our profession and I think these issues of inequities and, and to address um, vulnerable populations with, with design I think is at the core of what a lot of us really strive for and so I think that um, the issue of homelessness has become such a national topic especially in these big cities like ours um, that I think landscape architects um, are really looking for those ways to address it. We see it it, it enters our work in public space design in unfortunate ways, frankly. And that usually ends up in defensive design. 
That is, managers of public space cities ask designers to not make places too comfortable. You know, how can the we make sure that uh, someone doesn't live in that location, that doesn't feel like they can occupy that bench? And that, I think, we all find really um, a big challenge. Um, we know that the issues of homelessness um, and, and the dominance of one group, any group, in a public space is an issue. But I don't think any of us relish designing spaces that are uninviting. And I think that we need to find a way to continue to talk about that um, from a, a, a physical space design, a, a comfort design, um, a, a process and policy design. And I think landscape architects shouldn't be in the back seat on that. I think we should really figure out how to get ahead of it a lot of times um, and, 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 not, um, uh, and not be defensive and responsive. Seems like a great place to end the conversation. <laughs> All right. Great. Alan and Rachel, thank you so, both so much. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for listening. This podcast is part of the Homeland Project. We invite you to learn more about the project at homelandlab.com. Our work would not be possible without the support of MIGSVR and the Landscape Architecture Foundation's Innovation and Leadership Fellowship. To learn more about the tremendous work of LAF, please visit their website at lafoundation.org. Finally, we want to thank our friends at Yves for the use of their music. You can learn more about the band and find out about their debut album at thesoundofyves.com. Thank you.